Welcome to part two of the American Society of Cinematographers podcast, continuing our conversation between Rodney Taylor, ASC, and Lance Accord, ASC, about his career and his work on the film Where the Wild Things Are. Talk about growing up in Northern California. Um, you were a skater, I think, and yeah. art institute. Yeah. And, and um, how serious of a skater were you? I, I, I don't you know. know I was, I was a, a, a pre-Ollie, you know? Okay. That, 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 that had... Which I, I kind of think, like, if you look at the history of skating, like, it really all changed with the Ollie. That move changed <laughs> everything. Some of the earlier projects I did, um, you know, w- w- were involved with skating. And, and it was interesting, you know, it was fun, too, because when I started working with Spike, uh, that wasn't the first thing we did together, but eventually we did some cool stuff. Uh, some of the opening sequences for some of the films for Girl and Chocolate we did together. Um, I did some cool skate stuff with Mike Mills. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool director. We did a. We actually did a film called "How Do You Do an Ollie," which was like, <laughs> which I, you know, I mean, I think I think Mike saw it the same way. I mean, it's like skating. Really, you can look at like what 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 happened with skating once that trick or move uh-huh. you know, was invented. It changed everything, and uh, <clears throat> and so we did this film that just really breaks down exactly how you do an ollie. Okay. It was cool. <laughs> yeah, I uh, you know I traveled a lot when I was young. Like my my uh, I was born in Fresno, and I kind of lived there off and on up until I was around five years old. And, and my dad went to art school down here in LA at the at the art center before it had moved out oh, to Pasadena. Wow. Yeah, that's cool. I think by the time he graduated, it had made the move or it was in the process of moving to Pasadena. But it was <clears> in like Hancock Park originally, off a of third. Oddly enough, two blocks from where I live now. Right. It's just really crazy. It's <laughs> crazy when my dad comes and visits. <laughs> It, you know, visits me, it trips him out because he's like right where he went well, to school. But uh, now is he an artist now? He worked in advertising. He's art okay. director, okay. and uh, he worked in LA, and then and then uh, moved up to San Francisco um, uh, to work for J. Walter Thompson, and then ended up uh, in Marin County, up north of San Francisco, and uh, you know went to junior high and high school there, and um, you know kind of got into art. And music, there was a really, that was a great, great time in music in San Francisco. The whole punk rock scene yeah. in the Bay Area at right. that time was incredible. And there was all these bands playing all the time. We'd go into the city and check them out. Between the time of high school and art school, too, I ended up traveling for a while in Europe. I kind of traveled for a couple months till I ran out of money and ended up in London and got a job there as like a bike messenger. Worked in a pub and saved up some money and kind of just... <laughs> groveled my way by so I did that and then ended up traveling uh, traveling like for a full year um, and I think it was in that time traveling and photographing that I really kind of decided that what I wanted to do when I get, got home was go to, go, to, go to school and study photography you know I was really at that time you know I saw that you were like I was really loved the work of Joseph Kudelka so much yeah. of his work is kind of work you know and, and you know Robert Frank as well I'd, I'd you know in that time right around then I kind of was had become a, uh, familiar with a lot of different photographers and a lot of them were more the photographers that are out in the world observing things you know mm-hmm. um, you know so when I traveled I kind of began to you know take pictures and right um, and uh, that was kind of my portfolio when I went into school you know some of that work okay. and uh and the, and the Art Institute in San Francisco is like a really cool, the great faculty. It was a great, I mean, it still is an amazing school. It's one of the few fine art schools left. There's right. no applied arts, you know. Right. 
closest thing to an applied arts printmaking, but it's fine art printmaking, but there's no graphics, no architecture, no fashion design. So it's like you're pretty much guaranteed of not being able to get a job when you graduate. There's no, there's no chance for future employment, you know. But and, you, uh, you did pretty well, though, because you left there and went to work with Bruce Weber. How yeah, that, that was kind of just a total fluke, you know. <laughs> it really was. It was like I was there studying with, uh, you know, I w- so Perkle Jones was one of my teachers. He's an amazing photographer. Yeah. He did some great stories on the Black Panthers and Game right. 5 and Sausalito. And uh, Reagan Louie is a really good photographer as well that I studied with. And then I was studying films at the Art Institute. Uh, and um, Abigail Child is a New York-based filmmaker who's friends with Keith Sanborn. Um, she did a lot of work with Jeff Price. When he, at that point, he was pretty much just making his he he'd worked with he'd done the two films with uh bruce weber uh broken noses yeah. uh, andy minsker the boxer that documentary yeah. on him and then uh let's get lost right jeff baker and he came into abigail's class and talked to us and i'd seen those films and i loved let's get lost yeah and it was really it's an incredible film yeah it's just it's the photography is so beautiful and you know, at that point, too, my main influences were, like, I mean, I loved the work of, of, of Jim Jarmusch, and, like, you know, it was that was not that long after, you know, I think he'd done, he'd done uh, Stranger Than Paradise, I think maybe Down by Law, you know, a lot of that black and white, 16 millimeter, you know, photography, and uh, 35 as well, but, but, um, I heard through a friend of a friend kind of that Bruce was in town and um, I arranged a meeting for him. I asked if he did because I, I wanted to maybe shoot for him because right. I was shooting a lot of Bullocks, a lot of black and white, right. a lot of plus X reversal. And that's kind of what all those early films were shot on. And it was really, I loved shooting color reversal and I could tell by seeing those that it was Kodachrome and, and, and black and white reversal. So I met up with him and showed him my art school films, like on a VHS tape in his hotel room. It was like kind of embarrassing because the films are really like goofy, like, you know, like, um, and, uh, you know, we kind of got to be friends and he said, asked me if I wanted to work with, for them as a PA and I, I ended up having these weird PA jobs. Like I had to go out and paint this whole barn and before, and I wasn't hardly even around any of the photography, but it was like, you know, whatever. Right. And, uh. I, got, I think I had one day on set where I was holding like a bounce board for the wow. day, and it was cool to just to watch his process of working. It kind of demystified a lot of things for me because he has a really simple, straightforward approach right. to photography yeah. and lighting. Not, it's not. It, it, it just, you know, I think that's what was important. Like, you know, at that stage, you know, that was probably the one thing that more than demystification as a concept is such an important thing for like a young student filmmaker. I think for filmmaking, George Kuchar at the art Institute did that for me because he like, are you familiar, familiar with George's films? George and his brother, Mike, Not as much, no. they just make movies, you know, they're like, yeah. you know, it's, it's like hands on make a movie. It's kind of like a low budget version of a low budget Roger Corman film. Okay. <laughs> and he got George, right. you know, and I think, I think, uh, John Waters was very influenced by George Kuchar, his early work. And, you know, we would make these movies in class and, you know, we'd, we'd just finish the film. It'd be this amazing little, like, 20-minute film. Like, one was Love or Botten Voyage, and it was, like, Love Boat Gone Totally <laughs> Psycho Wrong, you know? And he was, like, he he just had this cast of art students, you know, and he would put us in the movies and we would take on roles. And I ended up shooting a lot of them. And, uh, 
but like he George would be in the back of the class with like the turntable and like right at the point in the performance like it'd be a romantic scene and you could hear like him <coughs> drop the turn and the song wow. would play and it'd be recorded live so it was all <laughs> it's like it's it like taking single system sound film recording to a whole other level it was single system everything like visual right. effects a lot of times would be you know a piece of glass would come up in front and like you know stuff would start to happen on it what, what was cool about it was you just realized wow you can just make movies like this it can be really complicated or it can be really simple right. you know and it's, it doesn't you know because I, sometimes I think it all feels so unattainable because it just you, you know you go see like a Spielberg movie or something right. and you're just like well, you know I wouldn't be able to ever do that but uh <laughs> <laughs> but um, but with with Bruce though like like I ended up just working more with him as he'd come out to the Bay Area. He was shooting a lot of campaigns around you know Point Reyes, San Francisco, sure. down yeah. to like uh, Monterey Carmel, and then eventually his first assistant left, and he asked me if I wanted to take the job. It kind of wow. like caught me off guard a little bit because I was still living in San Francisco. I was about a year out of school, still parking cars, and you know I, I you know was kind of involved in the art film community there um, um, and uh, moved to New York. Wow. You know, that was cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, met a lot of people working. I mean, it's a great way. It's like, you know, working as an assistant, you know, it's like, I think like in photography and filmmaking, you still have the whole idea of apprenticeship, you know? Right. Which you don't, in our society now, I think there's fewer and fewer examples of it in that classic sense. And I think in right. photography... You know, as an assistant, you really are an apprentice. Yeah. You, know, you, you don't really get paid very much money at all. You're there to learn. And it was like I learned a lot, you know, not, not just technique, but more about just the creative approach and kind of, mm -hmm. you know, how he approached his work. He was, uh, you know, and he still does. He's very, very brave in his approach and that he works very intuitively. You know, he doesn't like when we do... I know a lot of photographers like to really organize, set things up, have references of what they're going to do, and they go in with a real plan. And the thing with Bruce that amazed me is like, you know, we'd be, you know, photographing, I don't know, one day Hope Sandoval from Mazzy Star at the Chateau Marmont, and the next day we're shooting Elizabeth Taylor at like, you know, the, you know, the Shriner Auditorium recreating an Academy Award ceremony from the 70s or something. And like, wow. you know, he'd do go and he'd treat them both almost the same in a weird way. Like right. he would just really let the person and let the whole situation kind of inform what it was he was going to do. We were always switching things at the last minute and, you know, totally just we'd have we'd have a little studio set up and then we'd end up shooting it in the parking lot or wherever. You know, it was always like. You know, taking what you know, taking cues from what was going on. Always very aware and in the moment. Right. Not so caught up in the safety of a plan, because plans okay. sometimes can just really be a safety net more than anything. Right. Especially when you realize halfway in that well, this plan's not that not good. Working. <laughs> you know, right. and to be brave enough to punt and yeah. do something totally different, right. and trust that that person you're working with will have confidence in going there with you. You know. Like, I think that was probably one of the most important lessons I learned from him because he'd do it time and time again and always with pretty amazing results, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, after working with him for a while, um, uh, I started shooting for him, which was cool. Okay. And it's kind of what I always wanted to do, really. Right. That's what I met with him about in the first place. And he, I think, knew that that's what I wanted to do and was great about giving me opportunities. Sometimes it'd be a, a still shoot 
could be an ad campaign or it could even just be a portraiture assignment. And he talked to the guy. If, like, he was doing documentaries then too. I mean, he still is, but there was a couple that he had going. He was finishing up one on Diana Vreeland. He was starting a project with Robert Mitchum. And um, he would do, you know, photo sessions with them and I would shoot on Bolex. I mean, most of the work I did starting out right. was with Bolex anyway. And I love that camera and all the in-camera editing things you can do with it and dissolves and double it. I, I really liked working and still do like working with that camera. Um, and um, so I would just shoot over his shoulder a lot. Mm -hmm. And that kind of evolved into more organized things when I, I eventually became a cinematographer on a couple projects. You wow. know? So actually, I quite a few projects through the course of a couple of years, you know, after the last year of assisting for him. And then for two or three years after I worked for him, I shot a lot of his stuff. There was a group of us uh, that all worked with him, like Jeff Price. Um, there's a kind of group of New York filmmakers. There's Jeff Price, Evan Estern, whose sister's Tori Estern has a company, Northern Lights, who grew up in an electric company. And, uh, um, you know, uh, Jim Feely. You know, who used to assist for Jeff Price. Okay. So it's all, all this, this kind of group of us all worked with him. Yeah. And I ended up working for Jeff a little bit on a couple of shoots, and I ended up assisting Jim Feely a little bit as well. Okay. I um, mean, at that time, there were not a lot of photographers doing motion, I would think. Not really, no. It was, no, it was relatively now, new. There was like, you know, there was a couple production companies that were kind of, that were tailored more towards that. There was Ritz Hayden, Herb Ritz was doing it here in L.A. Right. O Pictures uh, is a production company in L.A. that was around that had uh, Matthew Ralston and Peggy Sirota on their roster. Two others, photographers that were starting to do film. I love Peggy's and, photography. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And she's a great director, too, in that yeah. she can really bring the spirit of her photography to her work. She can, yeah. You know, and we, we, we worked together nonstop for like four years. Oh, Wow. And pretty much every one of her jobs we would shoot together. We really just hit it off. And, you know, she's just able to kind of capture this naturalism that I just, I feel like I've always loved. And, you know, again, kind of going with things and, you know, working a lot with kids and untrained actors and needing to yeah. really be sensitive to that. You're not going to be able to get them to do that again. So right. you better be ready to get it when yeah. they do it. Yeah, the performance um, she gives, that natural yeah. performance for people is so beautiful. It's beautiful, yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, and that kind of led, after working with Bruce for a while, I kind of got some other opportunities. I was able to put a reel together that was nice. It had a lot of, you know, good people on it. I was, all the beauty, fashion-oriented stuff, which is so important, you know. If people look beautiful on your reel as a cinematographer, <laughs> right. they assume you can make people look beautiful. Right. But sometimes when you're shooting like Claudia Schiffer and Kate Moss <laughs> and Christy Turlington, right. it's like you could light, I mean, you know, you don't even, the ugliest lighting in the world and it's not ugly lighting, it's cool lighting because right. it's, you know, Kate Moss. But, yeah. you know, and I, I kind of learned that after okay. I got some assignments like shooting people, you know, shooting actresses or, you know, I was like, wow, okay. You gotta like. Uh, I mean, I learned tricks with 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 Bruce in terms of lighting and and you know, you know, working working with people where you're trying to kind of get, you know develop your whole you know toolbox of beauty lighting tools, right? right. And um, um, but like it was in you know after working with Bruce, I went out and did more fashion kind of beauty work um, because that was a lot of what was on my reel. But I also at that point really got into music videos. Okay. Um, and how did you meet this amazing group of directors? I mean, kind you of may not have known it then, but they've become some of the most iconic music video directors and, and film well, directors. Well, I think we all kind of kind of 
grew up at the same time in a way. You know, like we were, it was a, that was a time like when, it was right when satellite films was formed out of propaganda and, you know, a lot of the directors, you know, like, like Mark Romanek and Stefan Sanui and Spike were all with that company. And, um, you know, it was, it was right around the time when I met Spike. I was, I, I was shooting, it was at that time when I was starting to shoot for Bruce doing B camera and I'd done, Bruce had done a Volvo car commercial campaign that Harris Savitas shot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, um, I did all the second camera stuff, all okay. the all the skate because one of the families was the Fletcher family, is Christian oh, and Nathan Fletcher. Yeah. And you ever see that Volvo commercial? Well, no, it's pretty no, funny. Was... They're funny. It's a funny campaign that Bruce did, and uh, and uh, I was working for Bruce at the time, and I'd met Harris on some other projects that he had shot for Bruce, and um, I was doing uh, like that B camera kind of skate footage with Christian and, and uh, a lot of Bolex stuff. And uh, I met Spike at the at a gallery, so the alleged gallery on Ludlow in New York. There was an opening there that a bunch of skaters were at, and uh, and there was a guy Dave Aaron was showing his work, is a friend of ours. And uh, um, Spike had heard that I, you know, was a cinematographer and had heard that I'd shot a commercial, and he had a commercial. So we kind of <laughs> met, and it was like, you know. I think he was impressed that I'd shot this commercial. Right, um, the Volvo commercial. But I was, I, you know, uh, you know, Harris was actually the DP on it. Right. I was just like <laughs> second camera guy. But, but, um, but, anyways, we we met and kind of hung out a little bit and, and ended up working together. I think we, I think the first thing we did was a Nintendo commercial. But then we we immediately, you know, hit it off and started doing a lot of music videos together. Spike was the first satellite director I think I worked with, and through Spike I met I met Mark. Um, you know, we did we did a, a cool project together for G Love and the Special Sauce that was kind of very Robert Frank inspired, uh-huh. uh, black and white, sixteen mil. Um, Is that the one on the music video collection? The, the Spike? Yeah, I yeah. think it's, it's on Mark. I think it's on Mark. It's not yes, on Spike. It is yeah, on Mark's. yeah, yes, yes, it's yes, on Mark. Right. And. Um, yeah, that's really yeah. You know, it was that, that was a cool that, that that probably the best time in music videos. Really, that there yeah. there was it was kind of that moment where videos were huge. They were really popular, and people were spending tons of money on them. I mean, there was like you know multi multi million dollar you know yeah. two three million dollar two or three day video shoot. You know, right. it just doesn't happen anymore at right. all. But and like you know, Fincher was doing the, that that level and uh, Dom Cinna and. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, Mark was doing, you know, Mark had just done, you know, he'd been doing that Janet Jackson, Michael Jackson. There was some of those really big, big videos. And um, it was an interesting time, too, for guys like Spike and Michelle, because the, that, that big production music video was beginning to kind of devour itself in a way. It was kind of becoming, especially the uber slick, huge productions, the more on the heavy metal kind of side. They They were just... There was it opened the door for this whole other approach. Like I think Spike's sabotage music video for the right. Beastie Boys is a yeah. good example. Like really right. inventive, fun video with a sense of humor about yeah. the form itself. Because right. there's something inherently ridiculous about music videos, right? These <laughs> these bands taking themselves so seriously right. and laying their hearts out and I don't know. And uh, like that was a cool time, I think, because there was a lot of experimentation going on. People doing right. interesting stuff, you know, experimenting with the visual form uh, more, and it was less necessarily structured upon performance, and sometimes no performance at all, which was a cool thing. And that was kind of right when that all started. Yeah. You know, a lot of Michelle's videos were like that. You know, 
they really weren't performance driven pieces anymore they were conceptually driven right and as a cinematographer that was cool you know you're basically making these great experimental super inventive you know art films and some of them even had budgets and uh you know you could try stuff try different things you know um it's a great learning ground you know to really experiment um because the projects would change uh, you know, you, you do several in a couple, you know, in a couple months, as opposed to like on a film. You know, it's a much longer, longer right. process where you can experiment and try all these different things. Right. Like on um, Marie Antoinette, for example, one of the things I do as a cinematographer in terms of notes in the script mm-hmm. usually has to do a lot with camera movement. Okay. You know, and I, I feel there's certain sequences reading them. Right. You know, that feel like they should be handheld or should be on dolly or should be lock off. I love the handheld in that film because traditionally it would have been more period dollies. And we did a little bit of both, right? That was a tricky that was a tricky film of when to It's like when she uses, you know, modern music in the film too. Yeah. We knew going in that we weren't gonna recreate paintings. Like we didn't recreate it. The only painting we recreated or even referenced was the coronation. Uh-huh. There's a famous painting. It's actually Napoleon uh, who's in the painting. It's not, it's odd, <laughs> oddly enough, it's the coronation of the emperor Napoleon. But that painting we, uh, we used for the coronation scene where the young king, you know, it's right after they find out that he will be king. Um, but other than that, we never really referenced paintings, you know? And the whole idea, it was to kind of, if anything, steer clear of that. But oddly, like, steer clear of the tableau. Like, don't think of this film in terms of tableaus. It's what everyone does with period films. And it was like, part of why Sophia wanted to make this film was the connection that she had with a modern-day girl like that right. to a Marie Antoinette. So it's right. like, I don't think it, it made sense to not film it that way. To That being said, though... You know, it was very, through the process of shooting, there were certain, in those locations, and almost the wardrobe, it, it uh, to a degree, dictated a certain photographic style in terms of spacing right. that was tableau, in a way. Like, you know, if you had multiple characters in a scene, it, you couldn't, like, put them in, this, in a scene in the same way that you would modern actors in modern wardrobe. I mean, the women would take up a certain amount of space, and it just was what it was. I mean, they kind of had this... <laughs> diameter to them right. where the frames would often end up getting laid out in this sort of tableau kind of proscenium kind of like right you know so so we ended up doing kind of both in an odd way and but i feel like for the scenes there were certain scenes that were um maybe the the formality of that framing worked and and it worked in different ways sometimes it would just reinforce the how ludicrous the whole thing was like the initial dressing scene where she gets dressed for the first time when she wakes up in Versailles it's just the insanity of that whole ritual and all the different people handing her you know that ended up taking that shape and it it worked for the scene but um, I love the handheld work I think think my favorite photography in that film is the looser more handheld work where they're like partying and having fun and it just I, I think it really I think it's what it, it 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 too was the central core theme that I think was Sophia's connection to that material too. So it was great because it felt like this is what's telling the story that she wants to tell about this girl. Right. You know how people haven't changed all that much, really. Right. right you know the yeah. same petty concerns and considerations yeah. and the same 
doing the same things to have fun, yeah. drinking, shopping, right. hanging out with their friends, playing yeah. games, listening to music. Right. It definitely it's, made you think of a modern girl more yeah. than it would have. Yeah. 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 I mean, as a cinematographer, too, you really... I'm always amazed, like, you know, looking at, you know, I mean, my filmography is tiny. Like, you know, I, I look at, I look at some of my favorite cinematographers, and it's like, I just like, you know, they they do so many movies. I, it's like, I'm amazed that they can do it. You know, yeah. just constantly amazed. The other thing about your filmography is that you've worked with ultimately very few directors. Yeah. And, and talk about that is obviously a choice you've made, uh, and it's been very successful. The collaborations are incredible. Yeah. And I would imagine most of them are very close friends. Too. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm sure you must get all kinds of other offers, but how does it... So how do you focus on... I think, you know, I mean, like for, for me creatively, I feel much... I. I'm much clearer and have a stronger source of inspiration when I feel like a emotional connection to the material. Right. And, and yes. oftentimes it's easy. It's, it's easier to get that when you're working with someone that you've worked with before you understand their sensibility, you understand their take on it. You have an understanding of the script. Oftentimes if it's scripts that are just coming in and someone I've never worked on, I not, you know, not to say that that wouldn't happen, but I, it's, it's less of a known you know, <laughs> so and I, um, my feeling about the amount of films that I want to do is such that too. I I like I come, I've talked to Spike a little bit about his next film. You know, like yeah. and I'd love to be able to work with him on it. You know, and I I know if I go off and do a bunch of other films, by the time that comes, I'm going to be like, no way, I'm not going to go do another movie right now. <laughs> right. You know what okay. I mean? So I mean, there's been a little bit of that through the years too, because I've known kind of when the films are going to like. I knew where the wild things are was going to happen for almost two years before it right. happened. Right. Right. I knew it before I started shooting. Right. Shooting Marie Antoinette. Right. Um, but, you know, it's funny, though. I, I have to say, all that being said, the films I've shot and when I've shot them and who I've shot them with, it hasn't really been by some design. You know, okay. there's no real plan to it. It's just kind of what's what's happened, you know? Right. Um, but they are, you know, it's also, too, like, I think as a cinematographer, and especially coming up through the ranks, so to speak, the way that I did, I developed relationships with certain directors through the process of working with them on commercial, like with Peter Kerr. I shot uh, Dangerous Lives of Alter Boys with him, and that kind of came on the heels of doing a lot of work together with him on commercials and music videos. We did that little film with REM, and right. you know, um, and the same can be said with Sophia and Spike and Vincent Gallo. How I ended up working with him originally was just you know, was a, we'd worked on a commercial together, and right. so it's all these introductions that you get in that way. Um, how about your collaboration with Sophia? I mean, Lost in Translation really is one of my favorite films. I, I love it. Yeah, I, I do it, too. It, it practically looks like you were shooting it on the run. It's well, I mean, <laughs> we, I mean the, thing, the thing, like going into Tokyo and shooting there, Yeah, it's like, it's, I think like, right. that if you're willing to accept a certain level or degree of control, and go with the flow, you can get amazing results because the stuff just happens there. I mean, I'm, I'm talking mainly about like like exterior, city night exteriors, yeah. for instance. If you're willing to just kind of go with it, you'll get amazing things there. Right. Even the lighting is amazing at yeah. night, you know, yes. without doing a lot of lighting. Right. If, 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 and and um, 
the, 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 where you get into so much troubleshooting in Tokyo is when you need to start really controlling things. Right. Like doing a big street scene where you have to <laughs> lock up traffic and pedestrians. Impossible. And, yeah. You hear that word a lot if you yeah. try to plan things out in advance. Even making deals with like vendors and shops, yeah. you know? Like that's like, they just don't really, it's not in their, it's off the radar there. Like they don't really see, there's very few people that really see the opportunity of working with the production company and the kind of financial upside of that. They don't see it in the same way right. as they do like in a city where people shoot all the time. It's more like, well, that's not what we do, you know? I mean, yeah. we close at 10 and we're going to close at 10 and right. I'll have to have a meeting with a bunch of people if we don't close at 10. And, right. you know, it's just like, no, we were not going to stay open. You know, you, you go back again and again and no, we don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. So it's like, it's you just kind of... So you scout and you find a place where they do leave their lights on every night. And you hope right. that when you show up, it's the same yeah. as on all, all the other right, nights. Right. And you try to stay and work around that. You just kind of work with what it offers you, you know. Yeah. And I, I think, too, in terms of how you go about lighting, you know, for us working with, you know, everything we, you know, each location, it was all like that. Like the Park Hyatt was very generous. I think, uh, you know, I'm sure that Francis had done junkets there and knew people there. And Sophia had stayed there a few times. And right. there was connections and they were interested in working with her on the film. But at the same time, they weren't really interested in changing anything, any of their policies. Like they'd let us shoot there, but you could shoot between... Two in the morning and four thirty in the morning, or right. you know, you, you 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 know, so, and you know, you could shoot here, but you can't really bring any lights in, or you know, we're constantly dealing with those yeah. sorts of. So it's just that for that film, it was just coming up and designing an approach to the film and the way that we were going to shoot it that would work with that, yeah. which was usually like less is more, right? Try to well, it's beautiful how you integrated into the natural light that's there. You yeah. really did a beautiful job with that. I think. Yeah, it was like balancing with the exterior light in a high-rise hotel. It was an interesting challenge because there's this glow of Tokyo, and you really, to the eye, it's it's, it's really pronounced, and it was. You know, that was that that film stock was amazing. That was that uh, yeah, 69 or, or sixty was it? It was that impression or fifty two sixty three. Yeah. yeah, they discontinued it way yeah. too soon. They did. I wish they still had it now. Yeah, <laughs> they stopped not long after. Yeah, it was. Well, I think that your film and Elephant were shot. Yeah, on that stock. It's a cool the same stock. year, and then they were released. And I was like, wow, I want to shoot some of that stock. And then they were, they got rid of it. Yeah. I was like, oh. Now they have 29. Yeah. Which is similar to it, it's but similar. not, not as, quite the same. Like that, not that, as low contrast. Not as low contrast and not as light sensitive. Like yeah. that film was amazing how, yeah. like, you, I think you could, like, you could almost rate it <laughs> if you balance all the lights out to, like, you yeah. know, 2000 ASA. Yeah. Almost. You know, it was rated at 500, but three stops under was nothing. Like, right. you could capture that odd nighttime glow in yeah. the city sky that you get. Right. Um, not the lights themselves, but just the atmospheric glow. Yeah. Um, and that's through tinted windows, too. Right. That's what amazed that's right. me. Yeah. That was the thing that yeah. was always the sort of X factor is like, wow, right. it's really bright at night. And now we're in a hotel looking through like Indy 6. <laughs> right. You know, because all yeah. those windows are so tinted. We need to bring um, that stock back. Yeah, they should. I've yeah. talked to them about why they got rid of that before. But uh, um, I really, I, I, you know, it's the 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 approach to working there is something I'm actually more comfortable with, right? Than the mainstream, the more conventional production approach of you know 
you're having to make a lot of decisions, I feel like, on set sometimes as a cinematographer to just leave doors open to you so you're not boxing yourself in. It's like you're working with the AD about where to put everything. Right, yes. You know, and that really shouldn't be what you're thinking about, you yeah. know? But I think it's important, though, right? Yeah. You need to get involved in that as a cinematographer because you're going to show oh, up and there's going to be stuff everywhere. <laughs> yeah. and it's like, what if the light breaks or you're, you know... You get a beautiful bounce off of a high-rise building, and you actually can tell by looking at the sun you're going to have it for yeah. 25, 30 minutes, enough time to really get a shot with it. And it's yeah. lighting this intersection in a way that you could never light. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's like, well, and now you have a Jenny parked right there. You know, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, we did a lot of stuff on the fly in Tokyo, and sometimes by not having a lot of equipment, it enabled us to really change what we were doing quickly and not have to deal with production, you know. Yeah. Um, so, And I like working that way. What is your collaboration with Sophia like on these films? And and both she and Spike are, are also photographers. Yeah, they both are photographers. They're very different in their filmmaking approach, you know. Um, editorially, they're very, very different in how they approach their films. Sophia usually edits quite quickly. I think that um, they're... They're, they're very different filmmakers. Yeah. Very, very different. Very different in their approach to how they deal with actors and everything. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's, the scripts that they've done are very different, you know? Yeah. So, so, so Sophia's scripts, like Lost in Translation, that script was a group of scenes kind of that outlined in a whole experience. And there was room within those scenes for the actors to try different things. And a lot of it was visually told, you know? Mm-hmm. The, di- the dialogue doesn't really do the storytelling in it. Right. And neither does in Marie Antoinette, it doesn't really either. Right. Doesn't really tell the story. I think Virgin Suicides, the, the dialogue might tell the story a little bit more. Right. Um, Ed Lockman shot that. I thought that was really yeah, beautifully really shot. Beautiful. I love, I love yeah. how that film looks. Yeah. It's incredible. He really did a great job at capturing Sophia's. Um, just like I saw a lot of the photo reference for that film and a lot of the ideas and a lot of the images that inspired her. And that movie is such a great yeah. sort of combination of it it's such a it captures an era you know yeah definitely beautiful i went to see you uh, speak at the hd expo the other day and you told a very funny story about um um lighting women and the reason i want to ask you about this is is one thing it was funny but also your your approach to lighting you talked about yeah. lighting the room and, yeah um you know I'd like to hear that, and I think our audience would love to hear the story about um, both Meryl and Cameron Diaz. I've heard other of my contemporaries talk about it in a similar way. It's like nothing new, really, to, to say the, the approach to lighting an environment doing as opposed to doing it. It's the, the com, kind of older conventional setup of lighting every shot to the shot, bringing in all the gear, and then, okay, let's turn it around. And, right. you know, like that approach to lighting, I've never really done before. Um, I just kind of started out, but part of it had to do with like on, on being John Malkovich working with Spike and the way in which the blocking and the rehearsals worked out and how we shot the scenes and how we figured out to shoot the scenes and then would number the setups with the AD and just in terms of what we had to do for the day. It's like, we're not really going to be able to shoot this like that anyway. Like even if we wanted to do like a setup on each actor and then turn it around, it's just not going to happen. Right. Nor should it really, because that wasn't what the look of the film was about. Yeah. But but uh, but yeah, as I've always 
um, you know, coming up with a way in which you can create a level in a room or create areas of light in the room that the actors can move in and in, 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 in and out of, and that you know, so it's not so much about doing setups, you know, all right. the way around. That being said, though, you know, there are, to use the example of adaptation and working with Meryl on it, you know, I, we, I really wanted her to look beautiful. And we talked about, like, it was discussions that happened in terms of her wardrobe, hair, makeup across the line. Like, you know, the character that she, Susan Orlean, uh, who wrote the book, um, I think she was, like, in her mid to late 30s when she wrote that book. And, um, you know, there was the the the... You know, Meryl. I think she she really wanted to look beautiful in that part, and and um, you know the the that approach to lighting where it's just like okay, well here's the space and this is gonna, what's going to happen. It's like you get into a close up and you wanted you know I you know I plus I was working with Meryl Street, which was just like <laughs> that was like a really big deal to me. You know, I was incredibly nervous starting out. You know, on that film and you know we, and um, so. But there were certain like certain approaches to back, you know, you, you know, utilizing backlight and fill. A lot of times it was just that kind of passive, like the, the key light would be behind her, and you'd use that passive sort of sort of bounce off of a fill card. It's just flattering, beautiful light, and you know, we were able to integrate that into the approach. But but um, I always felt, and you know, part of it was Mer- Meryl. She she uh, has a hairdresser who's done films. I think he was with her all the way back, like before Sophie's Choice. Like, wow. Maybe even Kramer versus Kramer. Wow. His name's Roy, and uh, he's uh, Roy's about six four, maybe six five. <laughs> uh, dresses all in black. Uh, big, big guy. Yeah. Wears white, really clean sneakers. Has a little fanny pack with all of his glamour tools in it. But Roy would, uh, Roy would always like he would look at me on set, like, and he would like point, like he would like. He'd like maybe point to like under his eye and he'd tap under his eye like, oh, no. or he would yeah. tap his chin or uh-huh. tap under his chin. He'd like be giving me these cues. <laughs> it's like Tommy Lasorda or something. And I'm like, what the hell is Roy doing right now? And I'd start getting, and then like, he would like, you know, it'd be like, you know, how you're, you know, like you're, you're two thirds in, you're, I don't know, 40, 50 days into a movie, you're tired, you come to set in the morning and. I'd be getting a cup of coffee and Roy would just, he wouldn't even stop. He would just like walk past behind me and he'd be like, Meryl hated the dailies. And then he'd just like keep walking. And I, and it's like, what, what, what do you say? She hated it. Like what? Like, you know, and I'd walk over to Meryl's trailer and knock on the door and be like, Meryl, Roy just said you hated the dailies. Do you really hate the dailies? And she'd be like, no, no, I was just tired. And it's just like, she'd put it through. But I was just like on pins and needles the whole time, you know, but, uh, Yeah, and then, and then, and then, and then the the other beauty lighting scenario was again, and this is all Spike. You know, his decision to make Keener the siren, the sort of object of of, yes. of, of Craig Schwartz's <laughs> desire, right. and then to make Cameron Diaz the you know Lottie, you know, <laughs> coming home from the pet store with like animal feces, you know, in the in her sweater, you know, she she. she that was a funny one because like uh, um, Steve uh, Golan, uh, you, you know that, that that was propaganda produced that film, but it had kind of gone through. I don't know, it was a weird time of propaganda. It had been sold from to Polygram, and then Polygram sold it to Seagram's, or I forget what it was. But it was like the the, the money behind the film kind of shifted hands a couple times, and like uh, there was some pretty harrowing of dailies viewing. 
experiences, episodes <laughs> through the course of making that film too. What, one of them was quite funny. When the investors asked about a week into shooting Cameron when they were going to start to see some footage of Cameron. <laughs> And they, uh, they didn't recognize her at, at all in the dailies. Uh, and then when they found out that that was Cameron, um, I had a talk with Vince. And Vince was like, well, I just need to let you know this. We don't think it's going to happen, but, you know, there's going to be some talk and you might get some memos. And, like, you know, we might, there's going to be talk about changes, but I want you to know that Spike release reports that you're quite... It was, I don't know, that was the closest I think I've come to being fired off of a job. It's yet to happen yet. I hear it happens to pretty much everyone at least once, though, so. that's right. Um, You're you're now directing a lot of commercials. Yeah, Um, yeah. I would encourage anyone listening to go... um, Check out the website parkpictures.com. Is yeah, that right? Because yeah. I mean, I was really was some fantastic stuff on there. Yeah, uh, thanks, thanks that a lot. You're doing. And, yeah. Um, what do you, What do you like about doing commercials that are different than? I mean, you've the obvious advantage is the shorter time frame, but well, I think too as a cinematographer, like you know, shooting commercials. You know, I did it for years, and I, I lived in New York at the time, and I'd come out to LA, and it's like. You go, like, you know, you can go, you, like, sometimes I'd go from commercial to commercial to commercial, and you find yourself, like, waking up in hotel rooms and, you know, having this, asking yourself all these existential questions about <laughs> what the hell is this all about, and seeing your footage in a commercial and realizing you'd seen the commercial a bunch of times before and didn't even know that that was your commercial till you just saw it that time, you know, like, right. I don't know, it was, it got to a point shooting commercials, you know, you shoot so much film and... Not being involved. I mean, you, you try to be involved through dailies and sometimes go to the final telecine. But as far as the being involved in any sort of creative process, like and seeing it through, it just it, it started it, it started to feel a little empty, you know. And I found too, as a cinematographer, you're brought in to do what you do. People have an understanding of what it is you do, and oftentimes, you know, I think. Anyone that shoots film knows that as a cinematographer, what you do is a part of a whole, especially on films, mm-hmm. you know, you're, 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 you're photographing that something that a lot of people have put a lot of time and thought into besides your, you, right. you know, the production designer, wardrobe, yeah. uh, uh, you know, the scouting, the scheduling, right. all of that. And on commercials, it just, it really gets very random. You know, I, I find that you, you, you know, that. You asked about working with a small group of directors for features. Right. I mean, it got, for me, as doing commercials towards the end of shooting commercials, I really got to be a super small group of directors that I worked with. And partly it was that reason because, like, you know, there's a, a lot that goes into the decisions and choices that, go, you know, make a good image and, like, not being able to control them and showing up a day or two before you shoot on the tech scout and then the schedule oftentimes might be in place based on the geography, you know, location where where you were going to be. It just it it, it was uh, got to be uh, frustrating and sometimes unfulfilling the process, mm-hmm. you know. The the way around that when I when, 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 you know in shooting was really working with a, a smaller group of directors that you you know you you knew would be there in that way. Also, too, it was um, you know it's an uh, the like uh, directing there's this whole prep that goes in and i think for some cinematographers it'd be what they would least enjoy right the whole the the prep that goes into it the discussions with the agency uh 
you know, and then the finishing of the projects. But what I do enjoy about that is it allows me to be home more, really. And, and you know, you, 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 each job takes much longer. Like I found as a cinematographer in a month, you could do three or four or maybe even more jobs, you know, if you right. wanted to. And, and whereas as a director, I might do one every couple months, you know. Um, and um, But I, I think I prefer that process. I mean, I... I, I, I shot a lot of commercials and I kind of did that and I feel like this is a nice evolution into doing something else. Right. I, I like editing a lot too. I think editing makes you a way better cinematographer. It makes you think about how you shoot yeah. things a lot more when you're cutting the footage and that was part of shooting commercials too. It's like you shoot all this stuff thousands and thousands of feet of film and then you're you know, in, in a film, you do get involved more with the edit to a degree because, you know, if you have a relationship with the director, you're talking to the editor. Yeah. And a lot of times it's being cut while you're shooting it. Right. So you're learning about what's working, what's not working, and you're getting notes from the editor about different ideas, and you can build those into the project. But that's right. never the case on a commercial. Right. You just blast it out yeah, and you right. move on to the next one, right. you know, like a cowboy or something, yeah. you know. You know, also to the whole post process, I think it's like, I, I like that aspect of it too. Right. You know, there's a fair amount of the work that I've done has involved a certain amount of post effects. And yeah. Um, I think that's about it. I think there's one question I realized I didn't get into and without um, geeking out too much about it, um, you know, you've been, you've been shooting on film these, um, the features certainly. Yeah. I think that some of the young, younger cinematographers would probably love to hear your take on the, um, you know, shooting digitally, shooting on film, and how you uh, how you feel about that. I like shooting film. I love the yeah. process of shooting film. To I still love being surprised by film. Right. And uh, and uh, and that's a that's a part of it. I, I know, like, that for some directors, that's the worst part of film. They hate being surprised by anything. They want to know exactly what it looks like while they're shooting it. But I love how with film, you have a feeling about what it's going to look like, and then you always say, you know, it's like Christmas. You know, you get you look at that the film for the first time and. You know, hopefully the surprises, if there are any, are good surprises, right? right. And I, right. and I find more often than not they are really. Yeah. I I think it's like every story, every project has its own set of creative needs and kind of you know a lot of different modern mediums and stuff are perfect for that. You know, I've just recently started shooting with with a red camera, and uh, you know we did this one. It was it was a very very simple shoot. It was all in an office, and it was kind of flat overhead, fluorescent lighting, and it was meant to look somewhat oppressive and kind right. of uncorrected green fluorescence. And and for all intents and purposes, I don't know if the film would have really looked that different than the red. I mean, it was very controllable, very narrative con uh, 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 narrow contrast ratio, right. and it, it looked beautiful. It looked great. Um, and for what we were doing, it was perfect. Um, and you know, I. I the, the Phantom's an amazing tool. That's a really cool yeah, camera. You know, like, I love, you know, because Photosonics, I mean, I like I like the look of the film, but, you know, Photosonics carries with it. A, like, there's a lot of, you know, challenges that you run into, you know. A lot of times it just boils down to how much time you have to reload the mags each time, you know, and how, how much you can control to make the event happen when you want it to, you know, with Photosonics. Right. It's like, before you know it, that yeah. mag's done. So. Right. You know, some like the Phantom. I've done. I did a um, an ad for Acura um, oh, yeah. that 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 I loved. What that looks like. Yeah, beautiful. I, it's, it's, I like it's that. Beautiful. I like I that camera. On website too. Um, uh, you know, I'm interested to see the new red. It has that really big sensor in it because right. I think that's a cool thing. It's like 
to me, it's like, like there's so much stake placed on sharpness, clarity, resolution, having these giant files. You know, we're going to have an 8K file, and you know, or like, <laughs> like at that talk that uh, you guys talking about, I think it's a 10K file, so you can shoot a wide shot and you can just build all your camera moves in later, yeah. or you can reframe later. Yeah. Or like, I, I don't know. It's like, <laughs> I don't really understand why someone would want to, I don't know. When you start talking about these bigger sensors in these cameras, um, what that does to fall off and, and you kind of get into the world of like, uh, the, the, you know, medium format cameras. Like I've always, in stills, I always worked with six, seven. I, I love bigger negatives. Like I did, worked a bit with medium format cameras, like four by five cameras. And to bring that, like right. that, that's kind of, that, I think that could be really interesting. Yeah. Like I, I love the way that the, the 5D looks, that Canon 5D yeah. when you shoot high def with it. Yeah. I mean, it has its shortcomings but that sensor with a wide lens wide open it's such yeah. a beautiful it's almost like anamorphic the way that things yeah. fall off and um but i'm excited you know what's exciting is just again the, the demystification of the process and making the process accessible to people right. you know it's a friend of mine uh, uh started the slam bands film festival his name's peter baxter and he was just talking to me about the entries this year i think they got eight thousand entries this year wow. into slam bands uh, it's incredible. It's incredible the number of entries into that film festival. And he says the quality of the image making um, at the le- you know, with the, the, these submissions that they look at, you know, it's 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 amazing. Wow. It's amazing, and it's and and that's a cool thing. Yeah. You know, it's like the difference between big budget and no budget, and it has to do now more with the artists than it does with the, the than who can afford the fancy tools. Yeah. It's like it's like w- whether or not you have an eye, and you know, you could. You could go out and shoot a whole movie with a 5D. Yeah. And if you understand that tool and understand what it's good at and what it's not good at and design it visually around what the strengths are, you could probably make a beautiful movie with that camera. You know? And you can go buy that down at, you know, (laughs) B&H for 1500 bucks or whatever. You know? Uh, Like, now that there's so many more attainable, more accessible, you know, formats that people can shoot with, you know, it's... It's less precious in that way, which is kind of sad on the one hand, but on another hand, I think it enables younger filmmakers to really try a lot of stuff and get better, right. better at the craft. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. It's, I think with cinematography, it's definitely something. You, if, if you test yourself and you and you and you, and you keep working and you get the, you get the better at the more that you do. I mean, wouldn't you yeah. agree with that? Absolutely. It's you know, I think in that way, it's very much like you know playing music or something. Right. You know. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Sure. This was awesome. Yeah, it was nice talking to you. <laughs> <laughs>